Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In hindsight, Trump really should have just started a We Want Bollards chant back in 2015, and we would have avoided this entire problem. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lynn, Jen Coaston. Washington, D.C. is a, it's a ghost town. It's a, a town full of very, very grumpy ghosts. A vacant it's desert. Uh, the government is shut down, um, partially shut down. Which I think is an interesting um, separation because we've done like total shutdowns. And those, if you live in Washington, those are very funny because all of your non-essential friends spend the first week like going to bars at unreasonable times. And the second week, everyone starts getting very bored. Right. Yeah. The best situation to be in is to be in D.C. and not employed by the federal government because yeah. we also get some of the like happy hour deals. Right. But we do not have to forgo our salary for any time. And of course, like important distinction to make in a shutdown, it is traditional that if and when the shutdown finally ends, the people who have had to work over the shutdown get paid. Those those are the essential employees who, even though their department is officially not funded, they still have to work. They they then like get reimbursed after the shutdown has ended. That is not the case necessarily for federal contractors, uh, which kind of creates another level of wrinkle when we're talking about the government actually doing things out in the community. Many of which are actually done by contractors who may not be getting those contracts. Right. So yeah, let's 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 be wheezy. Okay. So so what happened is Congress passed some appropriate appropriations bills late last year that keeps the um, numerically largest portions of the government are running. Uh, Department of Health and Human Services, Defense Department, um, you know, those, those are kind of the big ones. Uh, but a lot of other agencies, including most notably um, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Labor, uh, a lot of the regulatory agencies are in a state of shutdown at the moment and that is because Donald Trump has said that he will only sign appropriations bills that include – I believe it's $5.6 billion. Yeah, their the, initial line was $5 billion, and then the bill that got passed at the 11th hour in December by the outgoing Republican House of Representatives was 5.6 or $5.7 billion for – you know, for a quote unquote wall, it's not clear where that extra 0.7 billion came from. They didn't really specify what they wanted the money to go to. But Trump has now kind of adopted that in typical Donald Trump negotiation mode. Instead of moving closer to what the other side wanted, he is moving further away. Right. And so as a result, we have four categories of federal workers and agencies that are happening, right? So there are the agencies that are simply funded. Right. right. So mail is getting delivered. Uh, if you make a new uh, disability insurance claim, that is getting processed. Uh, that is all fine. These are the agencies that have their appropriations and that are just business as usual. Then second, you have essential federal employees um, in the agencies that do not have appropriations. And this is a bit of sort of legal hand-waving, I think, that says that you know, basically, if you work, uh, they don't just let the prisoners out of jail, for example, um, and they continue to patrol the border. Um, so, you know, security type forces, things that are necessary to uh, save human lives and, and property damage continue to operate. Those people do not get paid. Uh, there is a firm understanding that they will receive back pay when the government reopens uh, because to not do that would be kind of outrageous. Uh, but, you know, for the moment, they are working unpaid. 
Third, there are non-essential employees in shutdown agencies. So they are on furlough. Um, I have a friend who works for the FTC, for example. And she is just not working this week and is enjoying a rare for a parent uh, opportunity to have the kids be in school while you get a day off from work. The downside to being furloughed is you don't get paid. The experience of past shutdowns has been that furloughed employees end up getting their back pay. So for a brief shutdown at least, people don't get too stressed out about it, although obviously over time, uh, the liquidity issue becomes a big deal. Then fourth, there are the contractors, right? So if you are a security guard in a federal building that has been shut down, you are probably not getting paid uh, if you are a janitor, if you work food service. Um, and traditionally – You may notice some, some traits about these kind of jobs that are different from the kind of jobs that are more likely to get reimbursed. Yes. Right. And traditionally, these people have not gotten reimbursed. And it's really a double whammy, right? And Because the sort of lower you are in the socioeconomic uh, pyramid, the less likely it is that you can just sort of bridge a couple weeks – out of your savings and right. also the less likely it is that you're actually going to get back pay, right? So there's like – there's there's the universe in which like the shutdown is kind of like fun times, unexpected January vacation and there's the universe in which the shutdown is real financial hardship. And, and that it's not even a, a necessarily a universe. It is a distinct time period. Yes. Um, yes. I, exactly. I kind of, I kind of uh, liken it to when people describe themselves as being fun employed uh -huh. and normally fun employment, the – absolute longest it can go while it's still at all fun is what, like two weeks? And then then it starts getting precipitously less fun. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, even for employees of major agencies, I think that there's been a lot of conversation nationally about how even people who are making like good salaries may not necessarily have emergency funds. And this is the kind of thing, especially for when people are expecting paychecks that will come right after the holidays. If people had traveled or bought Christmas presents or something like that, this could be a difficult time. I think it's worth noting that this period can be really concerning for a lot of people. But something else I wanted to bring up in case people wondered is that the, the special counsel's office is still open and still being funded. Just in case you wanted to know if Robert Mueller was at work, he probably is. Right. There, yeah, there, there is actually a kind of like fifth category, which is agencies that are funded not through appropriations right. bills. Uh, you know, the example that comes up in immigration world all the time is USCIS, which processes visas and such. Uh, because that agency is funded on the backs of immigrants paying fees for applications, like they're still going. I do think th that the time factor is really something that deserves to be driven home as we go from we're now in a longer shutdown than we've seen since 2013. Uh, 2013 was like a few weeks. As of yesterday, senators were going around saying it could be months and months, which seems a little bit alarmist. But like it certainly doesn't seem like we are moving toward closure at any immediate point. So we really are going kind of from a short shutdown of the time of the type that we've experienced a bunch to a longer. We're actually talking about missing paychecks shutdown. The first date on which federal employees would be getting a paycheck that they now won't is January 11th. Uh, that is not great as a political versus policy dynamic because as a political dynamic, the fact of the shutdown is what really tends to shock the system, right? There's this idea that like this is a signal of uncertainty to the markets, that kind of thing. And like to the extent that real people have money in the markets, that's real. But from the perspective of being a government employee or a person who you know relies on the services being provided by the government, the critical period isn't the first day after the shutdown. It's when it starts to become clear that you're actually going to be either working unpaid and missing paychecks or furloughed for such a period of time that you're going to have a serious gap in your income or you know living on social services that are not coming. There was a really great New York Times piece on the Native American tribes that rely on direct funding from the Department of the Interior's Bureau of Indian Affairs a couple of days ago. A lot of these not only are places where, you know, there are direct funds being paid for health care, for emergency services, for road maintenance uh, in places where there's been a lot of snow over the last few weeks, but also those services are often being dispersed by tribal members who have government salaries. So it's the double whammy of their roads aren't being plowed and people aren't getting paid. So that kind of 
the the people who live directly enough to government services that this is really going to hurt them, that pain is going to get worse and worse as the shutdown in Washington starts to seem more and more normal and less like something that is an you know an emergency that can or needs to be resolved quickly. Yeah, I mean, one interesting thing here is that you know different administrations have a certain amount of discretion in terms of how they play the shutdown. And this is an unusual shutdown in that it was initiated by the executive branch, right? So the other shutdowns that we've seen, including uh, the brief one under President Trump, um, that was sort of centered around DACA, the Obamacare one in 2013, the big Gingrich era ones in the mid-90s, they all took the form of Congress put some kind of policy riders in appropriations bills. Uh, the president wouldn't go for it. And then Congress said, well, we won't pass a CR, right? We won't pass a continuing resolution. The government is going to shut down until we get what we want from you, Mr. President. Um, and so the president in almost all of those cases has – particularly uh, the Obama administration what was very clear about this, Clinton administration too. They sort of wanted to make the shutdown dramatic, right? So one thing that they did very aggressively under Obama was the national parks were not appropriated and so he shut those down. Right. right. To they an like dragged to, a big chain across the front of the, you know, the World War II memorial. Right. And, and, this, and this took on an almost comical aspect, right? Because like you can say, okay, without the appropriation, like we can't run Yellowstone safely, so we need to close the park. Like, fair enough. But like I went to I happened to be in Philadelphia during the shutdown. And like the Liberty Bell is like just a discrete object that you can walk past. And they had like quote unquote closed the Liberty Bell. For and you could, and you could no 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 because it was I shut know, down. Know, so you I could know. so you could like stand outside the barricade and just see it. But like there was like a big sign like you can't see the Liberty Bell, like the monuments on the mall, right? Like you can't actually shut down the World War II memorial. Like it doesn't require staffing, but it was closed anyway, right? Because they were making like a big point, like the government has been shut down right. because if, Ted Cruz is a maniac. Right. If you are a person who wants to interact with this war memorial, you should be aware that this war memorial <laughs> is a government entity and that the government shutdown, you know, it, if you're the kind of person who otherwise wouldn't care about the government shutdown, you should care now for this reason. And then conversely, elsewhere in the Interior Department, the Obama administration cared about the well-being of Native Americans and tried to do what they could around the margin to sort of keep those social services running. This shutdown is the opposite of all that, right? Like the Trump administration decided that they would not sign a CR, right? Because one thing they could have said was, look, we really want this wall. We want to like have a bargaining process around the wall. We're not going to sign a permanent appropriation bill until we get what we need, but we are going to keep things running. They didn't do that. Trump welcomed the shutdown. He initiated the shutdown. But then he doesn't want to say that like you average American need to suffer for my wall. Right. So he is trying to keep the national parks open with a sort of skeleton crew of minimal staffers, which when it comes to the World War II memorial, like, is totally fine. Uh, but, you know, we're hearing stories. There was this sort of early, like, inspiring stories about volunteers working ad hoc to keep uh, Joshua Tree clean and stuff like that. But then you start to get to, like, the less inspiring stories, which is that it turns out that if you don't pay people to do park maintenance, uh, spontaneous social organization is like not really up to the job. I think it's also interesting, though, that like I think for a lot of conservatives, conser like there's there was a lot of talk among some on the right that like we should be rooting for a government shutdown because government shutdowns don't matter to real Americans right. because there's that entire idea that like people who live in Washington are cyborgs or part of the Borg, like that We Are Hugh episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, one of the great shows of our time. But like this idea that this will only really hurt like those bad people who work for the federal government and if you're a non-essential government, I feel like you know, Dinesh D'Souza tweeted something about how, like, it, are there any non-essential people in, like, private companies or something? And I'd, I'd point to Dinesh D'Souza as a non-essential person. But this idea that this will only really hurt, like, bad government people. Right. I mean, this and is that, a... that's kind of why Trump was like, oh, we can have, you know, 
nothing can, will be impacted for the normies out there who have no connections with the federal government, kind of based on the assumption that people don't care about, like, Native American citizens or the other you know, people who are very much affected by a government shutdown, because I think that there's this idea that, like, the ideal American would be only tangentially associated with the federal government. Right. I think that this is an amazing window into how people think of government versus what government actually is. Because the idea, you know, if you think about it, the idea that you can somehow keep a national park open while not having the people who usually staff the national park there makes sense if you think the national parks are full of unnecessary employees who don't do anything. But it also does really... It, it begs the question in the original sense of begging the question. It contains the premise of the answer in the question. It doesn't make any sense if you think that those people should be paid generally but shouldn't be paid in the case of a shutdown. The category of essential worker is kind of a kludge around this to begin with. Actually, during earlier government shutdowns earlier in the 20th century, agencies kind of assumed that like – Eh, Congress didn't really want the government to shut down, so they kind of designated large swaths of people as essential, and that has gotten narrowed uh, as it's become, you know, as shutdowns have become increasingly ideological and as the parties became associated with different ideas of how big government should be. But the kind of idea that it is obvious that not only, you know, frontline border patrol agents, but ICE agents who are doing interior enforcement who aren't in the, the front lines in the same way are obviously essential because law enforcement, but somebody who is, you know, working in an immigration court, even though that is immigration courts are, are DOJ, but ICE prosecutors are under DHS. And so the immigration courts have been, many of them have been closed for the duration of the shutdown, uh, which matters if you want to actually deport someone because an immigration court is where they would get their actual removal order. But it's also just the idea that the law enforcement officer is obviously essential and the prosecutor is obviously not, is this very narrow night watchman state. It's not about what policy aims you want government to pursue. It's about who are the individuals in working in government that you value. Well, so, yeah, so, so we should talk, I think, about the whole history of shutdowns, right? Which is for the first 200 or so years of American history, um, this didn't happen. The way the federal government worked was that the Treasury would continue to disperse funds and keep doing things unless it received instructions from Congress to change what it was doing. And so in effect, they just always assumed that there was what we now call a continuing resolution, right? The status quo would just continue until a law changed it. And there was a mechanical question about the sort of flow of money in and out of the Treasury Department. But that's something that always happens, right? Like if, if you think about how you pay your taxes, right? Money comes into Treasury in like big random lumps and then it comes out at a much more steady pace, right? So Congress – when Congress appropriates funds, it's not like they walk a giant sack of gold from the Capitol over to the Treasury or something like that. So things would just continue. Then when Jimmy Carter was president, he got annoyed that appropriations bills kept missing their deadlines and they felt that Congress was not taking seriously the obligation to do appropriations on an annual basis. And the attorney general at the time, Ben Civiletti, decided to have a, a renew a different legal interpretation of what happened when appropriations lapsed. And so he said, well, if there's no valid appropriation, the agency has to shut down. So then that raised the like obvious practical question. I mean, again, like, do you just say the prison guards don't show up to work? Right. Cause like that's absurd, right? Are you right. And by the same token, even the non-essential employees, like you get a certain number, you get like a half day by default, and then your agency can essentially notify the rest of the federal government we're actually giving these people a full day because that's what it takes for them to wrap up their business in a timely fashion. Well, so, well, so they're, they're, right. There started to be an evolving case law, right? Where So like Civiletti created this idea that, OK, the government had to shut down an appropriations lapse, but of course we wouldn't shut down the people who are genuinely essential, right? Then you had the Clinton administration where Newt Gingrich like sought a shutdown to make a political point and the Clinton administration thought correctly that this was a political battle that they could win. So they waged it as a political battle, right? Both trying to make sure that nothing disastrous happened to normal people, right? Like in terms of essentialness, but also that like it was annoying, 
Right. Like they were trying to annoy regular Americans to make regular Americans annoyed at Newt Gingrich. And that kind of doctrine continued through the sort of Obama shutdown. But then as shutdowns became more routinized, you started to get two different things, right? And one was, as Dara was saying, this kind of proceduralism, right? And so how many days can you use your existing funds? How do you say, OK, we need the orderly shutdown procedure? But then the other thing was the evolution on the Republican side into thinking not really in terms of a this is essential, this is not essential divide, but into the these are the good people and these are the bad people. And so – in the conservative mind, a government bureaucrat is like the worst thing you can be. It's the, right? the worst. The, the absolute scum of the earth is a government bureaucrat. At the same time, particularly in the Trump era version of the Republican Party, to have a badge and a gun is the best thing you can be, right? And so there comes to be this very sharp divide and you saw it that like Trump was bragging that he did something mucking around to get it so that the Coast Guard which is in DHS, was classified as somehow being part of the military for the purposes of this shutdown. So our Coast Guard heroes would keep getting paid, whereas like under lame Obama's interpretation of the org chart, they would not be getting paid. And so this is all about who is valued and who is not valued rather than whose work is essential and whose work is inessential. I think the problem comes in because – Conservatives somewhat misunderstand what actually happens in the shutdown that I think in their mind, the shutdown of a civilian regulatory agency that they don't approve of is like the purge. Right. Right. So it's like the EPA bureaucrats (laughs) are gone. I can do whatever I want. But it's actually the opposite of that. Right. There are things that you need to get a permit to do. And now that the EPA is closed, you can't get that permit, right? So like that's the real issue. It's not a free-for-all. It's like the opposite of a free-for-all. And if you've ever thought about like the weekend when government agencies close all the time, it's not anarchy on the weekend. It's just you can't do certain things, right? Like you can't get your driver's license. And that's what it's like all the time. And it's the kind of thing where for a couple of days, nobody's necessarily going to care. Right, But at a certain point, the fact that nobody can do a new source review process for opening a factory is going to be like a real problem. Like we would like to have some factories open at some point in the United States. It's going to come to be that people can't do initial public offerings. Uh, the, the SEC for whatever reason like has some cash lying around under the mattress or something and is not shut down yet. But they will be soon. And again, it's not like securities law is repealed when the SEC runs out of money. They just can't do the things that they're supposed to do. And whether you like the rules or not, what you really don't want is a situation in which no one can comply. Right. I mean, the other obvious example of this and one that even, you know, I think that the current iteration of the Republican Party cares a little bit less about the regularity of government functioning for the purpose of market prediction than previous iterations have. So I would not, in fact, be surprised if complaints about new source reviews were not getting the sympathetic ears in the executive branch at the top levels that they might have under the George W. Bush or, you know, Reagan, or hypothetically Reagan administrations uh, or even the Gingrich Congress. But the legacy of unified Republican government that ended, you know, the period that ended as of yesterday, Thursday the 3rd, was that they passed this major tax reform that was supposed to give people more money back in on their tax refunds. You can file a tax return with the IRS right now. As long as the federal government is shut down, you are not getting your tax refund. And so, again, as we talk not just about early January where no one files their tax returns unless they're I don't know. There are probably good financial reasons for certain people to do it. But as far as I, a normal person, am concerned, if you are filing your tax return this early, you are a weirdo. But as the shutdown continues, if it continues to go on and we start talking about periods where people would be reasonably expecting to get some money back from the federal government under this, you know, great new GOP tax plan Mm -hmm. and that's not happening. Yeah, that's that's kind of the problem when you think of tax reform as a good thing, but the people who are doing the tax reform on the ground as being evil government bureaucrats. All right. I I think it's time for, for a quick break and then we'll be back. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I think something that's also interesting to get into is the idea of owning a shutdown and how that works politically. And I think you've seen that a little bit because people keep bringing this up. But when Trump met with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer about the shutdown, Trump said repeatedly, you know, I'll own the shutdown. This is my shutdown. I, and I just keep in, imagining him just loudly yelling, like, my shutdown, mine. But now it's not. It's it's now the Democrats shut down. It's someone else's shutdown. And I think it's interesting because I think that there's been – you brought this up a little bit with Newt Gingrich. You know, when Newt Gingrich helped to shut down the government after the Republican Revolution of 1994, it was part of this entire idea, which was you know, to prove that, in the sense, the federal government is one not that necessary, and two can be bent to the will of the speaker or the political figure who is willing to do this. Because I think that he, his Gingrich's ultimate calculus was that the federal government doesn't matter as much as or like funding the federal government doesn't matter as much as creating this moment where I can make this giant statement by doing this and by bringing Bill Clinton back to the bargaining table. But I think that, you know, with this particular shutdown, now you have Nancy Pelosi, who is based at pretty much just as willing to let the government stay shut down over the issue of wall funding. And it's an interesting thing about how both sides kind of want to own the shutdown, but they neither side wants to fully own the shutdown. Well, and I do. I think that, frankly, from this position, Pelosi is in a slightly stronger strategic position, at least right now, because right. Pelosi had the advantage of like, Already, the House of Representatives under Nancy Pelosi as Speaker has passed a continuing resolution funding, you know, the rest of the, the parts of the government that are shut down. And furthermore, they passed the version that the Republican-led Senate passed back in December of last year. So, like, they do have a very compelling political argument for the people who care about which party owns the shutdown, which is a very – DC thing right now to care about. Right. The question it, of when shutdowns matter to the general public as a political matter is like extremely undefined as far as I can tell. Yeah, there, there are a lot of people. Um, it's interesting because people are like, oh, this could be a potential issue. Uh, I saw someone like, oh, this could be an issue in 2020. I'm like, buddy, if you think a government shutdown is going to be an issue in a presidential election held a year from now, wow, I, I, I admire you. And right. so, I, I absolutely remember when everyone was talking in, in fall of 2013 about how it would be an issue in the midterms that were 
less than a year or like yeah. barely a year away and instead we were all talking about Ebola. Yeah. Um, but, uh, those days. But yeah, it's it, so the people right now who care a lot about the question of who owns the shutdown are also the people who are very susceptible to hypocrisy arguments. Right. So if Nancy Pelosi can come back and say, yes, we have passed a bill to keep the government open and it's the same bill that Republicans, you know, some Republicans passed not a month ago, it's their fault for not passing that same bill again. That seems to me that it closes that argument down pretty quickly. There's also the problem where the Trump White House is not consistent in what it actually wants. Like Mike Pence went to Chuck Schumer last week and said, "Okay, we don't really think that we're going to get five billion. Why don't you give us two point six billion? And apparently in the recent meeting with the White House and congressional leaders this week, uh, Pence actually got mad at Schumer and said, why didn't you ever respond to that offer? And Schumer turned to Trump and went, well, because the president told me that he wouldn't accept any less than $5.6 billion. And Trump smiled and nodded. Like, there is a problem here if the vice president is going out freelancing and saying, we are going to give you 50% of what we, we are going to accept 50% of what we originally asked for. And there is a reasonable expectation that the president does not, in fact, support that. So, right. So now I, we should talk about, I think, in terms of who owns the shutdown, the, the key thing is actually what are we negotiating about here at all, right? I would say the way policymaking works is that if Donald Trump wants some amount of money for border security and if Donald Trump wants some amount of that border security money to be characterized as a wall, these are things that a president of the United States should be able to obtain. Right, And the way that you obtain things like that is you say this is an important priority to me and in exchange, I would like to know what is an important priority to you and we will reach some kind of an accommodation. And the dialogue has over the past two years continually gone off in that direction from time to time. And so if we assume that ultimately that's the resolution of this, because that, that could go many different ways, right? Democrats could make a big concession to Trump, like $20 billion and we definitely call it a wall and in exchange they get something big. Or they can make a small concession to Trump, like $2.5 billion and Trump can say it's a wall but we will deny it's a wall and in exchange they get something small. But either way, if we're going to bargain, then we can just reopen the government. Right, Because we can say, look, the government's going to be open and then we're going to have a bargaining process about how much wall does Trump get and what do Democrats get in exchange. What Trump has tried to postulate, which is odd, right, is he gave up on the $20 billion that they say they need for the wall. Well, and, and he he's, came, not, he's not insisting on all that money now. That's what I mean. But he put the $20 billion aside and he came up with this $5 billion notion. But instead of saying – I will give you something in exchange for $20 billion. He said, I will accept $5 billion, but in exchange, I want to give you nothing. And that's why we're in the shutdown, right? Like in a, in a technical sense, the shutdown is not about the wall. It's about Trump's position being that he should get the wall for nothing. Right. right. And, and like and that's why just to like to be literal, like that's why there is a shutdown. If we were talking about what are we getting, then the government could be open and we could be bargaining. And that's why there's something – it gets dicey every time Republicans start talking about anything because if anything is on the table, then it's like the shutdown itself becomes a little bit superfluous. But then the problem with putting anything on the table is that Trump has been such a um, inconsistent – negotiating partner over the years, right? So like Trump was saying the other day that we were going to have a wall for DACA deal and it was fine, but then the courts ruined it. And I don't believe that that's the case. No, that, yeah, I, I definitely would like to uh, reiterate some chronology from a year ago because I understand that a lot of things have happened in the last year, but I'm seeing this weird alternate take on the first two months of 2018 that I would like to nip in the bud. Um, in the first week of 2018, a federal court stopped the Trump administration's effort to shut down the DACA program by stopping to like no longer granting renewals for people who were already protected by DACA, meaning that they couldn't that they were nominally protected from deportation and had work permits. Uh, 
that was happening while Congress was saying, oh, we have six months, we have to deal with this DACA issue. The government shutdown that happened over like a weekend in January happened after that court ruling. There was still a feeling of urgency among at least, you know, among Democrats that this needed to happen. Uh, Enough Republicans agreed with him that it was a good idea, that there was some pressure on Mitch McConnell to deal. Mitch McConnell then reopened the government and said, ahaha, I didn't promise you a bill. I promised you a debate. Democrats kind of got played. And then there was a very truncated, very frantic debate over the course of a week in February that ended with a bunch of bills getting voted on and none of them passing. But the bill that came closest to passing being the one that the White House hated the most because it didn't do enough to stop chain migration uh, or family-based, you know, limit family-based migration. And the bill that they supported most vociferously, like, Failing by a reverse cloture vote, basically getting fewer than, fewer than 40 votes in the Senate. What then happened was that there was a reduced amount of, there was a reduced amount of urgency kind of once the government got reopened and the parameters of McConnell's deal as he'd agreed to it became clear. The idea that maybe it wasn't that urgent to make a deal because of this court intervention started to take hold. But it was not an immediate, oh, there's been a court ruling, we can back off on this. It was, oh, it's going to be really hard to make a deal, partly because the Trump administration doesn't isn't consistent about what the president will give us cover for voting on, because immigration is a very difficult issue for Republicans in particular to take votes on if they don't know that there's going to be political cover from the White but, House. But also because I, I think a lot of um people who cover politics have been a little unclear on this, is that the meaning of a White House DACA concession could be various different things, right? So there was once upon a time the DREAM Act, right? And the DREAM Act would have created a path to citizenship for a bunch of people. It was like, what, what was it, 1.6 million people? Uh, various iterations had various estimates, but yeah, 1.6 okay, so million. Right. It was a big, there was a lot of people. And it was like a full-on, you know, to, to use the word amnesty for these people who were going to get visas and work permits. They were going to become American citizens. And then once they were citizens, they were going to have like the rights of all American citizens. That did not pass. Barack Obama did not have the ability to conjure up that policy outcome, right? So what he put together was Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which was a program that you were allowed to apply for that gave you um, – I don't, I don't know if there was like a physical card, but it was like license to not be deported, work permits, you're good. But – DACA was not nearly as good as Dream Act status because right. not, it was not something it was revocable, right? That the president had cobbled together, right. also but also there was like, no path to citizenship, right, right? Right? Like not only is there no path to citizenship, but it's not even full legal status, which is something that got like the difference between legal presence and legal status uh, formed the basis of a lot of litigation during the time when DACA was in full effect. Um, but one of the the implications of that is that there is literally no way that Congress can step in and extend the DACA program as it currently exists. Right, exactly. So, so there was this thing and then it was just going to kind of persist. But then Donald Trump became president. So you could take it away. And not everyone who was eligible for DACA actually applied for and got DACA in part because people just don't always fill out government forms in time, but also in part because it was a sort of dicey move. It's like, do you actually want to go on a register as like, here I am, official undocumented person with a revocable deportation protections. At any rate, Lindsey Graham and Jeff Flake, when they were doing deal-making from the Republican side, they were making a, a very generous sort of dream offer to Democrats on this score that was going to get DACA recipients, it was going to get dreamers, something that was much better than DACA. Right? It was going to apply to a much broader universe of people than the people who were actually in the DACA program. It was going to give them real legal status, a real path to citizenship, some kind of protection for their parents as well, although less sort of good. Um, but it was like a good – it was like a good deal. Like if you were a dreamer, you would really want that law to pass. And so Democrats were incentivized to make – meaningful concessions in exchange for that. It wasn't just a kind of like grudging, oh, you get to you get to keep your DACA. It was it, it, it was better than that. It was like a, a good, nice deal. 
Um, Republicans, since the collapse of those talks, have often sort of put on the table, maybe we'll have some kind of two-year extension. And that's not such a great deal because everybody knows that sort of taking sympathetic dreamers and like slapping handcuffs on them and sending them out of the country is not a great political look for immigration enforcement. Like there's a reason that when Kristen Nielsen talks about how immigration enforcement is great, she talks about all the murderers they're deporting, not like random college students. So to offer Democrats, we are going to prevent ourselves from doing something politically toxic for a limited period of time and in exchange you're going to give us a billion many billions of dollars that's like not such a good deal right so in terms of the prospects for deal making like it really matters specifically what is the white house willing to do and they need to be like really clear in a really detailed policy kind of way that donald trump is just not personally. And these various tweets and remarks he's made about DACA and Dreamers over the years, they're not only inconsistent with each other, they're just like they're not granular on the relevant level about legal status, about path to citizenship, about scope of the program, about the fate of your parents, about, about temporary versus permanent. And like it just it, it makes a huge difference to Democrats between is this Republicans are like putting a gun to our head or are Republicans making us an offer? Right. Uh the and bracketing the question that like what happens to dreamers parents is i think always been it's it's not quite as it's a level of granularity that frankly congress has not gotten into consistently so not to relitigate things that were like details of past uh offers but just to to put a pin in that but the thing about donald trump's communication on this is that it appears to be the case that Donald Trump believes that Democrats should be giving him the wall for nothing because he campaigned on the wall and he was elected president. And once he has been in a position where he is trying to, quote unquote, negotiate with Democrats, he has started demanding other things. I have gone through this litany on the weeds before and I don't have the breath support to do it in one breath today. But the idea, you know, for example, the idea that Donald Trump is going to agree to a wall for DACA deal and never get distracted by the prospect of, well, we also have to limit chain migration or, well, we also have to cut the quote unquote loopholes out of the asylum system. Like, we don't have the evidence that he has either the message discipline or the policy inclination to do that. So it's not even clear what a good faith negotiation on these issues looks like that doesn't start with literally Trump doing what he did on like the First Step Act and saying, there is this bill. I am endorsing this bill. The problem is that that requires legislators to write a bill. And it doesn't appear that legislators have any desire to write a bill if they don't know what the president is going to support. It's, it is a very, you know, it's a bad dynamic for getting anything done. That's going to be what makes the kind of temporary solutions tempting because especially if you're, say, Nancy Pelosi and you're being offered a two- or three-year extension of you know protections for DACA recipients by whatever means and you think that you have a really good shot of beating the president in November 2020, maybe you take that deal. Because if you don't take that deal, the Supreme Court is probably going to take up DACA toward the end of this session, spring 2019. Given the current makeup of the Supreme Court, it is not super likely that they are going to side against the Trump administration on the issue of whether the executive branch needed to follow the Administrative Procedures Act in ending a program that it did not follow the Administrative Procedures Act in beginning. Um, which is kind of one of the ways you can look at the the DACA litigation. And so that calculus might look a little bit different, you know, for you right now than it would in a world where the Supreme Court wasn't going to end that, especially because like on the flip side, $5 billion is like 150 miles of wall. And if, if it's not a wall, it's bollard. You know, if you can call it a bollard fence and just deny that the other side should be calling it a wall, whatever. That does mean, though, if that is the path of least resistance, and I kind of I feel like it might end up being the path of least resistance, it it puts us in a situation where Congress doesn't have any incentive not to just keep kind of punting on that, right? It creates a situation where Congress, as they do with a lot of things that start out being temporary, 
it's just easier to keep the temporary thing than to build anything permanent out of it. And if that is what it ends up looking like, we'll have something like we have on temporary protected status, which isn't specifically authorized by Congress, it's broadly authorized by Congress, but which prior to Trump, the easiest thing to do was just continue kicking it down the road. And so you have you know, now a population of people who the Trump administration is trying to send out of the country after two decades and don't have recourse because they don't have a path to citizenship because their thing was supposed to be temporary. That's kind of – I worry that from a policy standpoint, that is the worst thing that could the, – the, the situation that could persist for the longest that is obviously not satisfying to anyone. My read, though, is that Nancy Pelosi is inclined to hold a tougher line than that. One thing that switched, right, is that before the midterms, this was a Senate-focused process because the partisan sticking point was that Republicans needed Democratic Senate votes to pass something. And before the midterms, Democrats had a ton of in-cycle members in states that Trump won. So these were people, uh, many of whom won re-election, many of whom lost re-election, who had a strong incentive to want a deal, a bipartisan deal to be reached, regardless of its substance, right? It just it would have been much better for Claire McCaskill for there to have been a bipartisan deal. Now, the most vulnerable Democrats lost. A lot of the Democrats from Trump states won solidly and are not that worried. None of them are in cycle now, right? Um, there is two Republicans from Clinton states who are in cycle. I believe no Democrats from Trump states who, who are in cycle in 2020. And also Democrats have the House. So this is now a House-focused process in which the clutch of moderate Senate Democrats who generically prefer deals are not relevant and the overwhelming preponderance of House Democrats who have safe seats and don't care at all have a lot of relevance because this is – I mean we remember this from a million John Boehner and Paul Ryan type things where like it could have been that 20 or 30 House Republicans wanted to do a deal with Obama but the bulk of House Republicans hated the idea of deals with Obama and like that's what it's like, right? Like there's 200-something House Democrats of whom maybe 30 or 40 have to worry about their elections and the rest of them just have to worry about losing primaries and like for them, best case scenario would be for no legislation to pass for years, right? Like of any kind, of anything. And they won't be that unreasonable because they, they know that life has to go on. But like there's going to be a strong predisposition in Nancy Pelosi's office to not agree to things with Donald Trump, especially when people generally agree that what is happening here is that Trump has started off an unreasonable process. OK, let's, let's take a quick break now. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. 
So something I want to get into um, from the, the work that I generally do is that ha- how this is being posited on the right. If we recall to thousands of years ago, namely like the week of December 21st, um, Trump had kind of backed away from the wall in a sense. Um, it was interesting because that took place around the time of Mattis's res- resignation and a lot of people pointing out that two years of Republican control of all three branches of the federal government, Planned Parenthood, was hadn't still been defunded. And there was the executive order banning bump stocks, which has provided to be way more controversial among gun rights advocates outside of the NRA, which is an interesting issue in and of itself. But it, it was interesting you know, when Sarah Sanders said, um, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said that they were starting to look at other options for getting border wall money or that, you know, and then when people started talking about slats, that's when you see um, folks like Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh you know, they took a very transactional perspective on the president. And there was an interesting National Review piece about this that's saying, like, most of Trump's base is not transactional. If they don't get a wall, they will still support him. But for the kind of I, I, the term elites is not exactly what I mean, but for kind of influencers. The, the influencers of Trumpism, they very much. They were they are in this for a specific reason. And for folks like Ann Coulter, who wrote about how great Trump was and also wrote, you know, that Adios America book, you know, I reached out to her and she said, you know, I don't want border security. I want a wall. I want whatever Israel has, you know, that if and, you know, she wrote a whole piece talking about how. She recognizes that that she believes Trump is a, is a gutless sociopath, and that if he, without a border wall, his uh, presence would just be a joke presidency who scammed the American people. And so it was this interesting. It's you know, definitely Bob, that. Though. Bob Corker actually pointed out that you know we have two talk show talk radio show hosts who have basically influenced the president. Isn't that you know is that tyranny? And it, it's interesting that on the right that. You saw this idea that like if – you know, and Lindsey Graham brought this up that like if there is no border wall, this presidency is over. And it's been a, a fascinating issue because – Immediately, know, Lindsey Graham said that if Republicans nominate Trump, we'll, we'll be destroyed <laughs> and Lindsey we'll Gra- deserve it. Lindsey so Graham he says said, a lot of things. He does. He says a lot of things. But I think the, what he is saying, if you take what he says as a – as messaging that he's attempting to get to Trump via Trump's favorite medium, yes. which is television. Yes. The idea that we've been talking about like, ah, you know, the border wall, I think it came up that, oh, it was, you know, it was a metaphor or a something or a border Peter wall. Thiel, it's, you know, like the day before the 2016 election, Peter Thiel gave a speech in D.C. where he said, when Trump supporters hear him talking about the wall, they're not thinking of something like the Great Wall of China. They see it as a metaphor for we need to enforce the laws we have. They're taking it seriously, not literally. So it, it turns out for many people, they were taking it both seriously and literally. Yes. And, you know, we've talked well, about... Well, although they're talking it, about slats right, rather right. than... So I think there are, there are different levels. Of <laughs> here's where this gets... Like, I'm, I realized a couple of weeks ago that this is, in a normal presidency, we would be talking a lot about the dynamic that has come up where... Donald Trump in early 2017, once he actually became president, had a pretty clear evolution in thinking about what he was going to actually push for on the wall, led by people like John Kelly, who actually, you know, knew some things and was running the Department of Homeland Security at the time, led by close allies of his, like the head of the National Border Patrol Council, which is the Border Patrol Union. He listened to the fact that actual Border Patrol agents do not like opaque concrete walls because they can't see what's coming at them. This is where a lot of people who didn't really understand it started mocking it as like, oh, Trump's talking about an invisible wall, a see-through wall. And what he was actually talking about were the exact, you know, bollards or what he calls steel slats that are now being, you know, that he's now promoting that the Department of Homeland Security, that's what they want to build with the $5 billion. But he didn't take conservatives in his base along on that journey. No. He, the, he appeared to, and his his White House appeared to assume that whatever Trump called a wall, his base would accept as a wall. And, and there maybe, is a swath of the base that probably will, right. because that is the swath that, like, the border wall is just a part of it for them. But right. for the transactional section of the Trump base, when he talked about the wall right. in the way he talked about the wall in 2015, 2016, they want whatever that was. And this is – I know that it seems weird to just be talking about people you know, like Ann Coulter, Rush Limbaugh, but these are voices that have – 
some degree, if not sway within the conservative movement, they represent a faction of the conservative movement whom Trump thinks about and cares about. Right. But, but I this think is this where is... it gets really wild because Trump also listens to the – to, na- to the National Border Patrol Council a great deal. Uh, you know, on Thursday, he brought them out for a very brief uh, – brought leaders of that union out for a very brief press conference in which they actually said, we are – you know, we understand that it – that we're not getting our paychecks right away and we're okay with that because it's so important that we have a physical barrier. They have long taken the position that when they say physical barrier, they emphatically do not mean a concrete wall. And so the world in which that is a very close interest group relationship that the president has and one in which there does appear to be a lot of policy influence getting exerted on him, it's it's the kind of split not just within the Trump coalition but between people who can usually expect to have Trump's ear that is very interesting – would be very interesting to see play out if Donald Trump weren't chronically afflicted with the tendency to agree with whoever has talked to him last. But this is right. also important for Democrats' mentality, right? Because – there can be some revisionist history around this, right? Like if Trump had started campaigning by saying what I would like to see is a significant fiscal commitment to constructing the sorts of barriers that were authorized by the Secure Fence Act yes. at an accelerated pace, Democrats would not have heaped derision on that. Right. They might have said, I disagree with that, but they probably wouldn't have commented on it at all. To be honest, because Trump said a bunch of stuff when he was campaigning. Much of the things Trump said when he was campaigning was really striking. And the statement that I would like to see an increased pace of construction right. of the kinds of barriers already authorized by the Secure Fence Act is not a particularly striking thing to say. Instead, what Trump said was that he wanted a big, beautiful wall that he did analogize specifically to the Great Wall of China, right. that he said would be concrete, that he described at various points as being 20 or 30 feet high. That would like that. randomly get taller at any given moment. But, but so that was a striking claim that attracted discussion. Much of the discussion of that from critics centered on the infeasibility and undesirability of doing that. Their view was that Donald Trump was being dumb about this, right? And there then became a political contestation in which Trump was saying that no, 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 these weak-kneed elites were refusing to do this obviously feasible thing because they secretly preferred open borders and his critics were saying this asshole is lying to you and is proposing something that cannot be done. What Trump has decided is that Trump was wrong completely in all respects and that everything his critics said about him was true. And he started this early, right? Like when he shifted, it's not going to be a wall. It's going to be slats. We don't need to do the whole border because some of it is mountains, blah, 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 right? So like everything Trump said about the wall during the campaign was a lie. Everybody who made fun of him as a liar and an nincompoop was correct. The position of John Kelly is that Trump was a lying nincompoop. The position of the Border Patrol Council is that Trump was a lying nincompoop, right? And if Trump was willing to humiliate and abase himself by apologizing profusely for having proposed this dumb thing, for riling people up about it, for turning American politics on its head over something that didn't work, for not even checking with the Border Patrol Council, right? If he was willing to do all of that, I'm sure he could get his stupid $20 billion, right? Like, so just, and I've heard frustration from people who are like, oh, it's like, it's just symbolic, it's just semantics, but like, it's not, because it's the core proposition, right? The central question in American politics for the previous three years has been, is Donald Trump a scam artist who lies to people for personal profit or is Donald Trump the only man you can trust to save you from globalist elites? And, right? or and like, is that it, is not a small question of semantics. It is a fundamental question in American politics. And like for Donald Trump to – Donald Trump is a scam artist and like that is what is going on here. That's why it's been downgraded to slats. That's why we need 700 miles rather than 2,000, whatever else. And it is with good reason that Democrats do not want to let him have his cake and eat it too on this point, right? I, th- I think it's interesting like, though uh, that many 
on the right appear to have made the calculation that both things can be true. He can be a lying scam artist, but maybe that's what we need in order to get the wall. The thing that we will really get, which actually starts reminding me of like, it it starts sounding like one of those like really weird, like the end of a Ponzi scheme. Like it's like, oh, you know, if I give him another $10,000, then I'll finally get my money back because that's, but but I know he's lying to me, but he won't lie to me this time. Well, but like the the Border Patrol Council, you know, there are various people in this mix who like I think have a reasonable prospect of getting what it is that they want out of this. Right. And it's worth noting that the Border Patrol Council nominated and endorsed Trump in the primary in March 2016, which is absolutely before there was any public or even leaked indication that Trump was saying, "Okay, we don't actually need a concrete wall against uh, along the whole border. Like they were either playing the long game and, and assuming that they could influence Trump to come to a more reasonable interpretation of what a border barrier looked like, or they assumed that the symbolic value of the wall, not for domestic political audiences, but internationally, the symbol of we are a nation that enforces our borders, was worth the inconvenience of the concrete. I don't know which one of those it is, but I do think it's worth talking about like the semiotics of the wall as both a domestic and international thing because I think a lot of the messaging shifts between the two, frankly. And I think that Democrats have as you know, the Democrats aren't coming out and saying we're denying Donald Trump the wall because it's important to the question of whether Donald Trump will keep his promises. And we think Donald Trump is a scam artist who is trying to fleece you. What they're saying is the wall sends the wrong message to the rest of the world that we are not a welcoming country. And that message is wrong. It is anathema to American values. And we want to be the kind of country that doesn't want to build a wall. I don't know that that gets bridged easily in a world where, you know, you're building bollard fencing and then Donald Trump is calling it a wall. Like on the flip side, even if Trump apologized in the weird hypothetical where Donald Trump apologized, I don't know that you lose – that you don't have progressives saying – I don't care that Donald Trump said he was wrong about things. It's still sending the wrong message. That, you know, the more that Trump expands his idea of what he can claim victory on, the less Democrats can accept in that calculus. Like it creates – it means that there's not any moving toward consensus because any expansion of what the wall means on one side has to contract it on the other side. Yeah. Right. But this is – I mean I I agree. Obviously there's been a counter-mobilization against border hardening that was not previously present in American politics. Not to say that nobody was pushing back against it, but like there was not a mass mainstream phenomenon in American liberal politics. There was a kind of niche issue from border area, you know, activists and groups and and maybe some Latinos in the Chicago area, you know, were like aware of this situation. Uh, but like Trump, by making such a big deal about this, has created a like anti-walling ideology that was not previously there. I think, though, that that would go away in the context of a bargain, right? That, I mean, it makes it very hard for Democrats to just give in to Trump. But, like, if you could say we're making a deal that is helping people in some kind of way, you know, you can, you can come away from it. But, like, yes, like, Trump has employed a series of tactics that are not well designed to obtaining a congressional appropriation for fences. You know what I mean? Like to to the extent that the policy goal here is to get $5 billion worth of vertical steel bollards constructed, this has not been a great way to go about it, right? If Trump had entered this negotiation saying like not even my version of this but just saying like, you know what? Like I went over this with my people and they say some kind of fence is fine and we don't really need a wall, but we do need $5 billion. Like I think you could have gotten this done, right? But like the insistence that the fence is the wall requires the opponents of the wall to oppose the fence. Right. And we can all say that that's pointless on some level, but like it, it, it remains actually very close to like the center of what we're disputing in American politics. And something you've said so many times, Dara, is like Trump's vision of deals is so (laughs) odd, right? Because his idea of a a deal is that you humiliate your opponent, but that makes it much more difficult to make the deal, 
right? It is a lot easier to make a deal when everybody gets to proclaim themselves a winner than when you insist that you're going to dance on their graves. Right. And it's very much not designed for dealing with the same people over and over again. Like it's great for real estate where you're picking one of many contractors at any given time. But when you're dealing with Chuck and Nancy who are the exact same people who you dealt with in, you know, a, a year ago and Chuck Schumer remembers perfectly well that you promised him $25 billion for legalization for the Dreamers and then John Kelly called you up afterwards and said, actually, that deal isn't going to fly. Like, you can't just decide that you're going to go to some other Democratic Senate minority leader. Like, those things don't exist. In hindsight, Trump really should have just started a we want bollards chant back in 2015 and we would have avoided this entire problem. I would also love for someone to explain to me why steel slats sound tougher than bollards. Like, I I gather that Donald Trump really loves the phrase steel slats, but it sounds much flimsier to me than bollards, which are a little technical, but it's like, you know, it sounds like something that is upright and sturdy and won't fall over at the drop of a hat. I think but steel, cha- is, steel is inherently tough. And also That's chanting why... slats is really fun. Just just try it. Oh, slats. there are way too many slats. consonants in that. Slats. No, Steel slats is alliterative. Steel is inherently tough. I think that a lot of people actually do not know what the word bollard they means. They don't, but that's what makes it sound technical and fancy. Mm. Also, I, the alliteration is probably why I just like it so much. You don't and, like alliteration? Oh my gosh, prose alliteration is the worst. Wow, that's the hottest take of this huh. I've heard yet. Okay, well, I think, you know, we've been going on for a while and we could debate alliteration <laughs> all day. So we we better wrap it up with this. Um, so, you know, thanks, uh, Jane and Dara, for uh, coming on, talking this over. Uh, I'm guessing that the government will probably still be shut down next week so that we can go further into the weeds of whatever may or may not be on the table in a negotiation. Uh, not so that I, anyone who is involved in shutdown negotiations who is a weeds listener should be incentivized not to deal because they want to hear us discuss this more. I promise you we will find another opportunity to weedsify. Don't let us get in your way. All right. All right. And we would definitely want to thank our producer, Jeffrey Geld, who is uh, this is his first Weeds episode. And uh, I think I think it's going to be it's going to be amazing. But any flaws, just blame him for it. We are the same great hosts as ever. Uh, So just know that. And the Weeds will return on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.